0: Hope to see you there. To some extent, I was on trial. The party was being given. You're listening to KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno. Stand by for Jennifer Stone with Stone Thrill. Happy ending. Nice and tidy. It's a rule of in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who Drop the shadow out of the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, today is um, November the 9th, 2004. And I need to make an announcement I always forget. I never get them in there at the end, so I'm going to begin with the announcement. Ah, it's not a very good attack, is it? No. Take back KPFA again. Tomorrow night, Wednesday, November the 10th, at La Peña Cultural Center, folks. It's happening at 7 o'clock. I'm actually going to get myself there this time. Susan Stone will be there. She is the um, Arts and Humanities Department here at KPFA. Bill Mandel, let's see. This is a panel moderated by Solange... Um, at, Chever, at, at Cheveria, um, of Flashpoints. It's, you know, all about the continuing issues of representation and free speech that face our community radio station. Let's see. Local station board chair, Riva team uh, former KPFA development director, Mariah Gallardin. I said Bill Mandel, didn't I? Right. Uh, and guess what, folks? If you get there, apparently you can meet our new uh, general manager, Roy Campanella. Now, he says he's coming. He says he's coming. Uh, I warned him that, of course, there'll be a lot of drama queens there, you know, a lot of station reps and former employees, and there will be an open mic following the panel discussion. It should be a hoot, Folks. I intend to do my um proper uh proper bit and plead for um unity. Harmony we will never have at this radio station, but unity we must have, yes, otherwise uh um, big trouble. Never mind, if you need to call up La uh Pena Cultural Center, their phone number is in the five and dime area code eight four nine. 2568, just call La Pena Cultural Center. It's in Berkeley, 3105 Shattuck Avenue. Yes, just a little bit south of um, Ashby on Shattuck, 3105, once again. The phone number in the Five and Dime area code is eight four nine twenty-five sixty-eight. And this is a free event. You don't need to um, bring your money, but there's always goodies to eat. Another thing I wanted to mention, because I think it's so special, this Friday on the Radio Chronicles, we've got a lot of fabulous things. Uh, First of all, Invisible Men, it's all about illegal immigrants gathering every day on Cesar Chavez Street in San Francisco, hoping to pick up day labor jobs. This is their story. This is Friday, November the 12th at 2 p.m. Also... There's a portrait of kids, high school kids, uh, kids in the daily grind of homework and boyfriends and girlfriends and drugs and parents. A vivid walk through the hallways guided by stories of high schoolers. Uh, oh, the last time I went back to visit a high school, it broke my heart. Oh, speaking of broken hearts, I need to begin with uh, some poems today. It's a little book called Poets Against the War, edited by Sam Hamill and it comes to us from Thunder Mountain Press. Yes, I opened it up last night trying to find some comfort. I listened to some of the stories about the uh, the hell that's breaking loose in Iraq, and uh I opened, what, first to the introduction with Albert Camus, who wrote, We suffocate among people who think they are absolutely right, whether in their machines or their ideas. For all those who can live only in an atmosphere of human dialogue, silence is the end of the world. Camus, yes, let me look here, Adrian Rich, she writes, A patriot is not a weapon. A patriot is one who wrestles for the soul of her country as she wrestles for her own being. For the soul of his country. Yes, a patriot is one who struggles for the soul of his country. I want to read you um, a poem written by um, an Iraqi, uh, a poet who is dead now, died as a refugee. His name is Salam al-Assadi. He was born in nineteen thirty six, died nineteen ninety four. He was an eyewitness to the bombing of his hometown in southern Iraq. Uh died the following year, yes, uh he died as a refugee, yes, he um was a witness to the tragedy there in earlier days. The poem is translated by uh Sali al Toma a uh, emeritus professor of arabic and comparative literature at indiana university and the title of the poem is the clay's memory by salam al-assadi the night is a descending myth a forest of black snow a sky of mud spitting out its mute ashes all over thus we appear as a blend of tears and dust, no distinction between our children's frightened eyes and the palm trees' wounds, or between the silence of the school's empty classrooms and the Euphrates' sad rumbling, no difference between the bitter gasp, the sigh of withering souls, the trees' smoke, the plains' thunder and the veils of drowned women floating on the river's surface. Like numbed, shivering, black spots, the river that was stunned by the disaster, a storm that swept all things into a bottomless abyss. The howl of the planets, the rubble, the haggard faces, the bewildered eyes, the agitated palm trees— And the bowels of the dead, children's corpses, and sparrows trembling against closed horizons. Yes, it's always the same war over and over again and again. Just one more here. This poem is by an American, Lucille Clifton. Um, it's about, uh, our country. Yes. It's called Stones and Bones. Lucille Clifton writes, Here is a country where old men gather in the capital and speak their language filled with stones. Their syllables are chips of bone. They speak of lifting up a creed. While... Cold and still, there under their tongue is somebody else's child or mine, bones and stones. Our ears bleed red and white and blue. This is a nice little collection called Poets Against the War, edited by Sam Hamill comes to us from Thundermouth Press, and uh, next time we'll do some more poems. What is it that Audre Lorde used to say? Never leave your pen lying in someone else's blood. At the same time, it does seem important to read to read about these sufferings. Uh, I wanted to ask those of you who may have a copy of the London Guardian. I've been looking for it the last couple of days. Apparently, the section on foreign news has an entire page that is black. And in the middle of the page, there's just two little words done, you know, in print, white print, in the middle of this black page. This is the issue that came out right after the election. And the two little words just say, Oh, God. (laughs) If you have a copy of that... I would love to get my hands on it. Uh, if anybody out there has it, send it to me. I've got to frame it. Uh, in any case, today I want to start or I want to tell you about, uh, an article in, let's see, it's the 8 November New Yorker. I think I found a play that, uh, says it all. The play is called, um, the Nine Parts of Desire, and it's reviewed in the uh, New Yorker for November the 8th, 2004. Um, it's reviewed by uh, John Lair, L-A-H-R, um, you know Bert Lair's son. <laughs> I love it that, yes, the, the uh, uh, you know, the guy who did The Wizard of Oz, The Lion and the Wizard of Oz, his son is a theater critic at the New Yorker. Um, this is a one-woman show. And it it's uh, one woman doing uh, nine women. Uh, the main focus, in the central character, is an Iraqi woman. She's a collaborator with the old regime. And she has suffered a spiritual death. Uh, she's become a nihilist, at least where her own life is concerned. She's almost... Uh, Insane with the pain. But the play shows us why. Um, uh, let's see. The, the title of, of the article is The Fury and the Jury. It's in the theater section. And the title, Nine Parts of Desire, is taken from the teachings of a 7th century imam who wrote, quote, God created sexual desire in ten parts. Then he gave nine parts to women and one part to men. The play speaks of the lost promise of the Garden of Eden. Uh, the origins, of course, are said to be in ancient Mesopotamia. We know all about that, you know. The city of Ur, U R. yes, the original place where uh, we came into being it's in Mesopotamia right in the heart of today's Iraq of course the play also uh, gives voice to an American woman you know the sort of woman uh, she goes to the gym <laughs> yes she's getting fat right work off that fat she can watch the war at the gym people work out to the war it's on three channels tell me about it been there or done that in any case, the voice of the Iraqi woman in this play, she's uh, a mourner. Uh, she voices chilling prophecies about our destiny, America's destiny. I was thinking the other day, uh, in Libya, I remember the wife of Omar Gaddafi, I remember years and years ago when she cursed uh, Cursed our nation. In any case, this woman character says, You, you have our war inside of you, like a burden, like an orphan, and we tether you to something so old you cannot see it. We have you chained to the desert, to your blood. Anyway, uh, I got to get my hands on the script for this play and see if we can uh, we can do some bits on KPFA. Um, I put the New Yorker down and turned on the TV, you know, just to check up and see what the boys were up to this week. And there he was. I saw him on the um, Mass Media. His name is Baghdad Bob. This is the guy, the contractor, who has gone off to Iraq like the carpet beggar. You know, the carpet beggars who went south after our civil war. They had a new frontier, no rules, um, you know, uh, free wheeling. just the man dance, the man dance. They are brigands and spoilers, these guys. They love the danger and excitement. You know, it's a chance to make a killing literally And figuratively, yep. Rightem, cowboys, the world's a woman, wherein hell's my saddle. My credo is always the same, year after year. Women of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your pain. I checked up on my shelf last night, and I found Sarah Diamond's book, Not by Politics Alone, That's the one about the enduring influence of the Christian right. And I made a little pile of books, you know, fundamentalism uh, on the Christian uh, right and fundamentalism uh, under Islam. Always, always, it seems that um, we have the authoritarians versus the nurturing groups of... let me recommend to you George Lakoff's book Moral Politics, that's the one where he explains to us, you know, this uh this hierarchy, this model we have for Oh, I think of it as, you know, the nurturing families who are mildly permissive and then there are the other folks, you know, who tell you the way to raise your children is not to pick that baby up when he cries, right? Um uh, Punishment, yes, they believe in punishment. It's kind of the way I divide up the world. Virginia Woolf used to tell us that fascism begins in the cradle. Uh, In any case, uh, you can check out the other book I had in my pile here, Susan Faludi's Backlash. That's another one on uh, the fundamentalism and uh, the issues dealing with abortion, which we have to tackle. And, uh, I meant to spend all of today on that one issue. It's so, so overwhelming. We have to start at the beginning and go on till we come to the end. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at an article on Bush and Scalia. It says, You want privacy rights? Pass a law. Now, we have to recognize the simple fact that, uh, uh we're talking about privacy rights as well as abortion most or some men don't seem to understand that uh there's more to it than just uh, just just the woman's issue oh yes uh it's about all of us uh bush started it out by suggesting that when he appoints the next supreme court justice you know the abortions will become illegal He signaled that message to his base by saying he wouldn't appoint a Supreme Court justice of the type that voted for the 1857 Dred Scott versus Sanford decision, you know, the one that institutionalized slavery and sparked the Civil War. Now that's code speak to anti-abortion fanatics. They've argued for decades that the denial of civil rights to African Americans by Dred Scott is qualitatively the same as Roe v. Wade's denial of a right to life to fetuses. Okay. While Bush was preaching this gospel, uh, Justice Scalia was laying the legal groundwork for overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, He suggested to a group of students at the University of Vermont that women don't have privacy rights or the concomitant right to choose abortion, because those rights are not specifically named in the Constitution. Now, of course, uh <laughs> yes, every time, here's, here's Scalia in his best Orwell speak, he says, every time the Supreme Court defines another right in the Constitution, it reduces the scope of democratic debate. Ho, ho. Okay, uh, he demands you know that the Constitution spell out the rights now, most of us who had our civics courses and and uh, uh, studied these matters were taught that um, uh, we have uh, all the rights that we are uh, our, our inalienable rights are granted to us you know by god and uh, these guys are saying that if the rights aren't explicitly written into the Constitution, they don't exist. Uh, now, this is, of course, what Associate Justice Clarence Thomas subscribes to. Uh, Scalia okay. says that abortion, gay rights, and the right to die are best left to the legislative and executive branches. Yeah, you want a right to abortion, pass a law. In his belief, we get our rights from the government... Now, that follows more closely the logic of dictators and theocrats, not the logic of Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton. Uh, Until Scalia and Thomas came along, modern Supreme Court justices generally understood that we don't get our rights directly from laws. Civil and human rights don't even come from the Constitution as the Declaration of Independence states. They pre-existed it. Right. Uh, if you read the Constitution, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Our entire government, including the Constitution, comes from we, the people, exercising our rights to create a government answerable to us. There's a clear historical trail to prove this. Uh, so complicated, all of this stuff. Um, it is my feeling that Jefferson was right. He said that things might change in the future. He demanded the Bill of Rights because he felt that over time, you know, uh, things would be eroded. He understood about this king thing, the king thing. Uh, Hamilton said no, you know, that it was implicit. Uh, oh, dear... I guess we're all going to have to go back and take a civics class. I have a a list of what the women had to say about this. You know, Abigail Adams at the time, she said, (laughs) she said in a letter to her husband, John Adams, she says, all men would be tyrants if they could write, if they could. So Jefferson said, well, we better get this Bill of Rights in there, you know, because... If we don't, somebody's going to come along. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is that if if you list the people's rights in the Bill of Rights, then anything that isn't listed there, you see, can be a question called up. Uh, let's see now. Jefferson said that, um, what is it, that we were, uh, he, he, he referred to John Locke, other folks back in the 1600s, uh, He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that the rights are clear and obvious, that they belong to us from birth. Uh, And he foresaw a time when these concepts which are fundamental to the founding of America would be forgotten, you know, by Scalia and Thomas and Bush. And that um, uh, he said the government would uh, intrude into our lives if we didn't specifically tell them Not to. This is so complicated. Jefferson and Madison had this long correspondence where they argued about this. uh, And Jefferson finally won out and we got this Bill of Rights. Um, uh, Human rights may be well known to those writing the Constitution, said Jefferson, you see. Uh, They may all agree that governments may not infringe on human rights, but nonetheless we must not trust that simply inferring this truth is enough for future generations who have not so carefully read history and who may foolishly elect leaders inclined toward tyranny. Okay, okay. It's such a tangle. Uh, It's all, of course, about semantics and about uh, this game. Obviously, if we specified every human right our Constitution would be as long as, oh, the Dutch Constitution. do you believe it's, I think, 150 pages long, that one? <laughs> in ignorant or corrupt hands, our Bill of Rights may actually limit rights because there is great reason to fear that a positive declaration of some of the most essential rights could not be obtained, you know, in requisite latitude, uh, Anyway, Madison and Jefferson went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, They finally decided that it is true the Constitution doesn't grant rights. It acknowledges that we are the sole holders of rights and that we don't need to pass a law to have a specific right. Uh, But despite all this evidence, Scalia continues to insist that we only have rights if he can find them written down in the Constitution, you may think I'm repeating myself, yes. But his closest peer on the court, Clarence Thomas, agrees. In that Texas sodomy case, Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, I can find neither in the Bill of Rights nor any other part of the Constitution a general right of privacy. Echoing Scalia and Thomas's so-called conservative perspective, Rush Limbaugh said on his radio program back in June of 2003, here's Rush Limbaugh, he says, there is no right to privacy specifically enumerated in the Constitution. Jerry Falwell similarly agreed on Fox News the same week. With no right to privacy, Roe versus Wade can be be overturned and Patriot Act provisions wouldn't infringe on our non-existent rights, that is to say, uh, you know, the Patriot Act would be okay. We couldn't challenge that. The Supreme Court is prepared to determine whether we the people hold rights like privacy. And at least three members of that court will be appointed by Bush. We know that now. And it's going to happen soon. John Kerry said in that second debate, he said a few years ago, when President Bush came to office, uh, Bush stated, what we need are some good conservative judges on the courts. He said also that his two favorite justices are Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. So you can see what direction this is going in. Uh, when Bush was questioned about the erosion of our rights under the Patriot Act, he brushed the question off by saying, quote, I really don't think your rights are being watered down. James Madison did not believe that Jefferson's fear of an overreaching government could ever come true. But here it is, folks. Here it is at our doorstep. Your rights, prepare to kiss them goodbye. Now, I've taken a lot of this information from my favorite, uh, my favorite writer, Tom Hartman. And you can find Tom Hartman's work on his website, I suggest you check it out. Very often, you can find his work on common dreams. Uh, but the best place, I guess, to look is Tom at Tom dot com. But I gotta spell that for you because he spells his name uh, no caps, of course. Tom T H O M T H O M Tom at Tom Hartman T H O M H A R T M-A-N-N dot com. Tom Hartman is a project-censored, award-winning, best-selling author and a host of a nationally syndicated daily progressive talk show. Once again, his website is com, and his most recent books are The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight and Unequal Protection, The Rise of Corporate Dominance and The Theft of Human Rights and We the People, A Call to Take Back America. And write another book, What Would Jefferson Do, A Return to Democracy? Okay, let's hit the ground running, folks. Uh, none of us knew <laughs> that millions of Americans would be more afraid of what, you know, a couple of guys do in bed than they are uh, about, yes. Who 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 knew they would be more worried about a blowjob than their job job? we got to hit the ground running. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at uh, 8 20. Until then, this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Have you or someone you love been in prison? Come to a Peace and Justice Community Summit on November 13th in East Palo Alto. Join formally and in-